and welcome to Now Fear This with Becky and Marie, the podcast where we talk about all the things that scare the shit out of us and a few things that don't. I'm Becky and that's Marie over there. How are you doing, Marie? I'm doing good. What are you fearing today? Well, I gotta be honest, I'm fearing my cat, Walter. I Walter. I, this has been a big thing lately in the news, you know, women saying, hey, you know, if if I end up dead, it's it's my husband, you know, just letting people know. <laughs> and yeah. so as as a close friend, I just want to let you know right now, we're capturing this on audio. If something happens to me or James, it's probably Walter. Walter? Why? How is he so, going to kill you? If I'm sleeping, he could subdue me. Like, first of all, he can open all doors and cabinets now. So our kitchen style is a type of kitchen where the cabinets don't go all the way to the ceiling. They stop just shy. And then there's lighting up there. Walter is able to jump and take his back leg and just hit up against the cabinet and propel himself to the top of it. It's literally one jump. Wow. And he'll do it unexpectedly, like while I'm about to drain hot water. He'll get up to a high spot where something is stored. And as I'm walking by, he'll try to knock it down onto me. So when we got him as a kitten, he got into our condo. The first thing he did was run up to the loft and jump off the top of the loft. We have 20 foot ceilings. It's, it's high. Let's just put it that oh. way. And he hit the ground hard. And then he laid there for a minute. I was like, crap. And then I, I walked oh. over to see, and then he like came to and then scurried behind the couch and wouldn't let me get to him. So he probably has one of those serial killer head injuries from that, right? <laughs> in the mornings when I'm super sleepy, my office is in the loft as I'm going up. He just, bam, comes out of nowhere and starts trying to trip me. James actually fell down a couple of stairs on the loft. Wow. And <laughs> the, the thing that's really scary that he does is he's like, he runs up the, th- the stairs, does a turn, hits my desk, pommel horses off my desk, and then sticks a landing on the railing of the loft. He takes his little paws like, like just right in front of each other. He sticks it and he's just taking his lips and moving them back and forth. Like he's really proud of himself, right? Then he stops to look down if we saw. Uh-huh. And then he just starts pacing the railing. Ooh, that is a little bit of a creepy behavior. It's creepy, right? And the thing I'm thinking is, what if he falls onto my head? And he takes you out. Yeah. On his I mean, way to the dark side. So at first, James <laughs> used to get really upset by it. And he would scream, get down. And he would try to squirt him. And I'm like, I don't think squirting it with water while he's on the railing is the best idea. But... So finally, I said, he's doing it to get us upset. He's like that, you know, that passive aggressive neighbor that does stuff. And I'm like, so just ignore it. And he's like, well, what if he falls? And I'm like, well, I'm telling Walter this and I'm telling you this right now. I'm like, Walter, if you fall, there will be no life-saving actions taken. So, (laughs) you know. We've already implemented the do not resuscitate. Exactly. Yes. I mean, he's destroyed all of our furniture. And I think I had like five dresses. He got into my closet and tore all of them to shreds. Yeah. James said something to me that was mortifying. He goes, hey, Walter did something a little rapey the other night. (laughs) What? What? 
So he'll come and put his muzzle on your neck. He's not sucking on it or licking on it. He's just pressing it in very hard into your neck. And then he starts kneading. But the kneading is super aggressive. On your throat. And and James is actually normally the victim. <laughs> right. But apparently James was like, no, and set him aside. And then Walter jumped on top of him and took the covers with his paws and yanked the covers off of James and was like, this is going to happen. My husband is being semi-assaulted. He's being assaulted by our cat. Yeah. So I just, you know, I just wanted to make sure that it was on record that I don't show up to our next podcast. (laughs) Call the police. (laughs) You're... You're crumpled at the bottom of your stairs because of Walter. We should put some crazy ass video of Walter on our website as bonus content, fearthispodcast.com. And then if you subscribe, you can get some pictures of video of Walter on there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I know I for sure I can capture some video of him uh, sitting on his new scratcher, uh, staring at me like he wants to murder me. Okay, spotting your death for sure, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But you know, this, this this is probably a good, segue into the topic today which is um, somebody kills you who did it having having someone in your family that has murderous intentions such yeah, as somebody you thought you loved that loved you yeah did you have a fear today becky when i was studying at cambridge i was focused on until the last second of decision making on my dissertation i was focused on incel people that we talked about last week if you haven't listened to that episode It's called first degree cheesiness and aggravated douchebaggery. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to decide between incel murderers and family annihilators. And so I I did a lot of research on on those topics. So today I'm fearing that the perfect family next door can end in a a horrible family murder. Yeah, so, and, and the way we're framing this is with the Netflix documentary, American Murder, The Family Next Door. I really wanted to talk about this documentary because it was it had a big impact on me. How much and did you know about the story before the movie? Nothing. Oh, you hadn't even heard of it? Nope. I knew nothing oh, about it. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I, I think it's important because not everyone has seen this documentary. It may seem like it, but not everyone has. So I just kind of want to give a brief description of what this documentary is about. Okay. In Frederick, Colorado, August 13th, 2018, Chris Watts murdered his pregnant wife, Shanann, and their daughters, Celeste and Bella, who were three and four years old. This documentary is unique because it uses police footage, home movies, content from Shanann's Facebook page, cell phone messages, and text messages to reconstruct the months and days up to the murder. The filmmakers also utilize police body cam, news reports, interrogation room footage, and videos with Chris to chronicle his attempt to cover up the murders and the subsequent investigation and his November 2018 sentencing to life in prison without the possibility of parole. This is just a basic breakdown of what happened. But one thing that, that I think we should address before we go into the details of the crime is the stylistic approach 
that the movie uses. So I'm not sure which is more frightening, having your actual words and actions held up to scrutiny or the creepy crime reenactments where they take like the soap opera version of you and mm-hmm. and the actors sound like they're in a porno. Well, they also didn't interview people. There was no narrator. It, were, it was like such an unusually, for me, unusually gripping documentary and I love documentaries all types all styles I'll watch it I don't care if it's about people playing uh Donkey Kong which is a great documentary or Tickled which we gotta talk about that someday too but this one was uniquely compelling because it didn't have any of the usual true crime documentary um stylistic choices or tropes either like it was the classic for me example of letting a story tell itself which the best storytellers, fiction or nonfiction, they let the story tell itself and they don't need to make it even more dramatic or worse. This story told itself. The way they showed that it unfolded was was even more horrific in its plain everyday suburban neighborhood looking situations and backdrops and, and the way they contrasted what was really going on with the social media posts of the perfect family was fascinating to me. it wasn't exploitative no that's that's another thing too like i was again thinking about those crime reenactments it's just very exploitative and creepy and there was none of that i know sometimes the music can be very manipulative you know you can watch um you can watch some of these posts that shanann makes or some of the text messages and then you take out the music and put different music and you may have different feelings about it so I think that's probably the only manipulative thing that, that I noticed was, was that aspect of it. Did you think I, it was manipulative or just dramatic? Well, I don't think it tried to, it might have, maybe it was evocative. They wanted to you know, evoke emotion, but I don't think it was manipulative. It didn't feel manipulative. Maybe not. I, I, this is just something I've been thinking about a lot when I watch documentaries is the music, just because in a different, even with this, even with this, we're, this is turning us all into like armchair um, marriage therapists or, right? Because mm-hmm. we're, we're seeing how the text messages unfold, how her posts unfold, and we're judging them in hindsight. Whereas if it was just a friend of ours making the post, we might feel differently about it. Because we can't see, and we can't see anything other than the lens of this woman was murdered. We don't see, you know, that's how we know her. You and I wouldn't know her if it weren't for that, for that. And we wouldn't see these posts if it weren't for the fact that she was murdered. So we have to, we have to unsee that and just look at a woman who's just living her life and trying to make her marriage work and, and, and lamenting the fact her husband didn't seem to care about her anymore, you know, just struggling day to day, like the rest of us. And we'll get to the victim blaming stuff. Right, right. Here in a minute, but I wanted to read this because it's so brilliantly written in New York Times analysis of this show. Jenny Popplewell is the name of the person who created the documentary. And the author of the piece in the New York Times is Bilal Qureshi. The film's power rests in the filmmaker's decision to eschew the traditional form of the crime documentaries with dramatic narrator and interviews and constructs a narrative entirely out of archival footage. Her incessant social media updates, video confessionals, and text messages with her husband form the central material of the film's narrative. 
Those elements eventually collide with the body cam, footage, polygraph surveillance, his confession. The result is a film that feels eerily intimate, but also expansive enough to reflect the distance between the online performance of a happy marriage and the devastating truth of relationships unraveling. I think it was, it was in another uh, article said this, that documentaries, especially true crime documentaries of late, do not put the, the person who died as the central figure of the documentary. And this did. She was the central focus instead of him. He's just an ordinary creeper, fucking asshole murderer. He's nobody special. And the the Ted Bunny confessions made me sick. I, I wish I hadn't even watched them. The, the self-analysis of these serial killers and these murderers makes me want to puke. I don't want to hear what you think about yourself or your crimes. Right. Because the other, the other one that I saw recently, the, with Errol Morris in it, he was being interviewed. Guy, Jeffrey McDonald? Oh. Yeah. Yeah. That's a. Guilty as fuck. Yeah. Well, the source that you just cited kind of leads into something I wanted to talk about, about this documentary format, which is the weird state our nation is, our country is in, maybe even the world with regards to social media. The idea that we've created a fantasy world online that bears no connection to reality, you know, People just only post things that make them look fabulous. Like I have friends that are like posting pictures of themselves on a yacht. I'm like, they don't have a yacht, you know? <laughs> I thought about doing this every time I make a post, just like have a paragraph of things like hashtag blessed, hashtag best life, hashtag content, <laughs> hashtag love him, lucky girl, made for each other. It's, it's all so fake, you know? But it also feeds into this whole thing, which is, we're a nation of stalkers and inappropriate self-disclosers. And we're like in a codependent relationship that knows no boundaries, right? So depending on your preference, if I like watching other people's lives and there's plenty of people out there that want me to watch their lives and it's getting creepy. <laughs> it's getting really, really creepy, right? So yes, this was from Vox, V-O-X.com Vox is my favorite news source right now. They're phenomenal. I just donated them today. So Asia Romano wrote this about the Watts case is that Shannon, even if she's in the middle of the story, doesn't know the story she's in, which is that of a man fatigued by his wife and responsibilities, has an affair, struggles to support his family financially, decides he's had enough. We know how much she loved her life because she was constantly telling us so on Facebook. She posted everything live streams and videos. She shared her thoughts on her husband, how grateful she was for his love and support. Her Facebook and Instagram accounts became her online diaries, recording all events, large and small. And the most notorious of these is her surprise announcement to him that they were having another baby. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about that moment. When the story first broke and, you know, I think it was like three days span before they found the bodies. And I think anyway, it was three days. It was already national news where's this woman and where are these children and then they started showing some of her facebook videos and they showed that one of her videoing him coming around the corner and saying surprise we're having another kid mm -hmm. and the expression on his face it's this is the description in vox immediately he has a near a stricken near panicked look at mm -hmm. first and then it's followed by a lot of forced enthusiasm did you catch that moment like you did it jump like it did i mean again all of this stuff I'm watching now in the context of knowing that she's she and her kids have been murdered. But one that really stood out to me was the the Christmas scene. 
where she has him dress up like Santa Claus and just how emotionless. And I mean, he was just like a beat up guy, you know, and there, there were a lot of videos too, where she was like admitting that she was a bit of a handful or that she was high maintenance. And he was always in the background with this like blank look on his face. Like he had no personality, like he was an empty vessel, you know, and that's the narcissist sociopath thing that they're not faking how to be a human. They are not quite sure how to do it. Yeah. His behavior was bizarre. Even the, the police footage from the body cam where they went over to the neighbor's house and the neighbor pulled the cop aside and said, this guy's acting really weird. But, but yeah, the pregnancy scene was totally forced. I wanted to touch on the moment when you're watching Chris realize he's caught when he is watching the video surveillance of his neighbor standing in front of that TV with the cop that very morning when the neighbor rewound it and you saw him see himself load something into his truck and drive away. And he's got his hands on his head and he's all fidgety and itchy. And if you a man whose wife and children have suddenly disappeared into thin air, you're going to be watching that video, that TV with your nose two inches from the screen, trying to see anything you can. He wouldn't even look at the screen because all he was focused on was himself and he knew that he, he didn't know how much of he was going to get caught, but he knew if it was facing his driveway that there was some reason that he was going to get caught, you know? In those beginning scenes, because I didn't know what was going to happen, I was trying to give Chris the benefit of the doubt, only because everyone reacts to things differently. When somebody, it's kind of the tricky thing, like obviously if someone's a sociopath, they're not going to have emotion about it. I'm not talking about his emotional reaction. I'm talking about him watching a video, having the opportunity to see a video of his wife driving away with her children or somebody kidnapping his wife and children or some nefarious thing that occurred. And he's not even looking at the screen because he knew it was, he was going to be the one who was. Oh yeah. He was acting shady. Um, But but that told me everything I needed to know about him. That was like, okay, dude, you know exactly what happened. The neighbor was even wrong here. There's something wrong here. And it was another thing that was emblematic of, oh shit, it's all about me. It's all about me. I mean, I I also wonder too, like the internet is turning people into monsters. It's like nobody wants a camera in their, in their face all the time. And, and like, if you're videoing your life all the time, rather than living it, I don't know. It's that struck me as well. Well, that's, that's one of the, central questions is, is is the internet turning people into monsters or is it just giving monsters an available outlet that they wouldn't have had before have the monsters always been there <laughs> or is it turning people into something ter- terrible you know that's, but, a, good, that's I mean, a good question i think we a, cultivate we i mean in the case of shanann she was putting herself out there in a in an extreme way there's the other side of it where we cultivate our worst self through anonymity too. You know, people use the internet as a shield. Like there's stuff that people say to me and to others on the internet that if they said that to me at a bar, they'd get their ass beat, <laughs> right? Talking A, yeah. I mean, all what? the stuff that people tweet out and say things and and say like people, even what Trump said about LeBron. I'm like, you want to say that to his face when he walks in the room? I'm pretty sure you wouldn't on this inappropriate self-disclosure too that it's promoting with people we've been friends for a long time i don't think i have ever texted you about like hey james won't have sex with me (laughs) i'm like 
James uh -huh. is in the shower right now, you know, and I'm laying in bed ready to have sex with him. Like that was just so shocking to me that Shanann was texting intimate details about her sex life with friends and family. Like she had no boundaries at all with what she was sharing with people. And I do think the internet distorted her sense of reality a little bit. Well, one of the things that, that there are actually studies that show this, so my source is more than just my ass on this one, that the like reality television, talk shows, all that stuff, and leading up into the internet has created, has recalibrated our true north when it comes to our authentic emotional reactions. Because nothing can just be good or bad or so-so. It has to be the worst thing that's ever happened or mm -hmm. the greatest life anybody's ever lived. It's got to be the most dramatic thing. Otherwise, you're not going to get clicks or likes or loves or comments mm -hmm. or whatever. And the definition in today's world of popularity is not whether or not you actually have friends that you can pick up the phone and call, or even whether or not you get invited to parties, it's whether or not you get likes. If you haven't if likes on Instagram or Facebook, then that's considered a level of popularity that somehow fulfills people. One of the things that, that social media has done in terms of our language too, right? It's changed our definition of friend. It's added words like unfriend, and then it's changed our definition of follow. We are followers of someone on Twitter or Instagram. And in the real world, if you followed somebody, that's fucking creepy as fuck. But right. it, it's not an accident that on Instagram, Twitter world, that they use the word follow because it's a really creepy thing to do. I'm going to go and look at someone's life right now. Yeah. But that's the new norm because we've recalibrated our true north. Yeah. I want to see what so-and-so is up to. Like there was an Onion article. If I can find it, we can post it. But it was like local woman loses like a week of her life investigating, you know, classmate. <laughs> and it's like <laughs> that sort of thing. You you know, the access we have to other people's lives is shocking. Yeah, I was thinking about this. The the internet generation, and and the crimes they commit are so shocking. There's like any time in my life when I've thought about doing something morally questionable. The first thing that goes through my mind isn't where am I going to put the camera to record this, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Like mm -hmm. it used to be, I'm not saying it's better if you rape and try to conceal it or murder and try to conceal it. But now people are like, hey, I'm going to live, live stream this rape I'm doing with my buddies. That's a, it's a level of disassociation with reality and lack of empathy for others and it's becoming so commonplace, Becky. There's also the chicken or the egg question of that. What you just described about videoing rapes and stuff. But the thing is, people have always done it. Gang rapes have always happened. Groups of, of out of control dudes rape girls at parties. It's happened. It's always been a thing. But now the weird part for me is instead of the threat of a camera videoing it, inhibiting that behavior and going, oh shit, I can't get caught committing right. a crime on this, you know, they film it and send it around to everyone they know. A few years ago, one of the kids, when they were raping this girl, literally used that word. He's like, oh, look at her. She's so raped right now. And she's laying there passed out and all the dudes were taking turns raping her. Do you think that that camera there was like encouraging him to do it? Yeah, I, I do think that in an attempt to get likes or in an attempt to have this online persona and a disassociation with reality that 
it just seems natural to people that, well, if I'm, I'm recording everything else in my life, I'm going to record doing a murder too. That stuff exists. While I was very moved by this documentary, I, I am disturbed by the trend that now so many people are excessively documenting their lives for us to be voyeurs in their lives that we may not need reenactments anymore. We'll mm -hmm. just get to see how it unfolds. It's a little, it's a little disturbing. And, and it's not a criticism of the movie. Not a criticism of Shanann as a person. And there's not one aspect of anything that we're going to say that will join in on the masses of people no. who victim limbed her. It makes me batshit crazy. Like, um, I would have killed her too. I mean, there's a lot of that. But I disagree with that 100%, obviously. But I also agree with my, my friend over here who wrote for Vox.com, who says the film did not victim blame her. In fact, by placing her front and center what it, of, the, of the story of her own life, it showed her as the person who was super positive and loved her husband, loved her kids. One of the things they also said that it was so brilliant in this is there's a lot of people like, oh, she was super controlling, but it's impossible to come away from it feeling that she was anything but a strong woman trying to navigate marriage with a husband who lied to her, cheated on her, guilt-tripped her, ignored her, and ultimately blamed her for her own murder. Once Shannon and the children are dead, he immediately is out of his depth and floundering with no clue how to cover his tracks. And if anything, you're left with the impression that without her controlling nature, steering and guiding that family, his narcissistic personality traits probably would have surfaced even earlier. Isn't that interesting? That is interesting. And remind me when we talk about the investigation, because I have some theories about why he confessed and who he confessed to. But okay. with regards to, to victim blaming, um, I used to write an article for, for my school newspaper in college. I did write an article about, about rape and how I don't like all the different classifications of rape, like date rape, acquaintance rape, rape rape. It's like rape is rape, you know? We're always looking for a way to define violence that happens against women as somehow their fault. And I encourage everyone to do a Google search on rape jurors and sexy panties, because this is a, a big theme amongst jurors is that a woman's panties will be shown to the jury as some evidence in a rape case. And I just want to pose this to you. Whenever someone on the jury questions the panty choice of a woman who's raped, do you think it's a man or a woman? Ooh, it's a woman, isn't it? It's usually a woman. Yeah. And I've, I've read a couple of different examples where a woman is sleeping in like lacy thongs she's not going out to a club she's just fucking sleeping a guy crawls in her window and rapes her and then his defense attorney brings her panties up as evidence like is there an app that that lets rapists know what kind of panties a woman is wearing when she's sleeping but no okay so we are yeah. so good at that as women i think it just needs to be said the rapist the murderer are to blame period end of sentence like what she was wearing, what decisions she made. It's just like, sometimes it's just bad luck. Like the woman laying in her bed at night sleeping is the perfect example. If people are gonna question her underwear choice, then it doesn't matter what you're doing.
right? Yeah. And I'll tell you another way to really drive this home. Next time anybody wonders after a woman is raped, you want to know what she was wearing. I'll tell you a obviously very sarcastic, but very pointed, ironic statement that my husband made one time pointing out the absurdity of asking what a rape victim was wearing. We were watching a murder show. This little girl was like eight and was kidnapped and raped on her way home from school. And Curtis looks at me, he goes, what was she wearing? Are they going to ask that about an eight-year-old? Did the eight-year-old right. invite that walking down the fucking street? Right. So ask yourself that. If you ever want to wonder what somebody was wearing, ask yourself what the eight-year-old was wearing too. Yeah. Or since we're, since we're talking about this, like, why is it that when a woman gets cheated on, they immediately turn on the other woman? Right? Right. <laughs> but Nicole's not the problem. Shanann's no. not the problem. No, 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 no. Chris is the problem. Yeah. And um, it's easier to say, well, Chris is a good guy. It's just his wife's a jerk. Or Chris is a good guy. It's just this woman like was a temptress. Um, I, so I think all of our problems go back to the Bible. This is the, the Adam and Eve story, right? So many people believe this, that the woman is the temptress and the dude, I mean, honestly, like Adam is like this dopey guy that has no control over himself. He's just like, the woman is guiding him towards everything. And then she deceives him into to eating the apple and ruins his life. That's the narrative. And it's to this day, it still goes on. Interestingly enough, Chris corresponded with this woman. Her name is uh, Sherilyn Cadle. And uh, he wrote con con quote unquote confession letters to her. And he actually blames uh, Nicole, his mistress, for, um, for him murdering his wife and children. Here's a couple of excerpts. If I had not met Nikki, I would have never killed my family. And that's pretty direct. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Feelings mm -hmm. of my love for her was overcoming me. I felt no remorse. The darkness inside me had won. I felt evil swallowed up by things inside me. I felt like I could kill anything and be justified for doing it. You know what you do, Chris? Go down the street and you fuck yourself. Turn left and fuck yourself. Do a U-turn. Come back this way and fuck yourself. You fucking asshole. I don't want to say Nicole's full name because I think she was deceived in the beginning. And then when she saw what was going on, she did the right thing. So this is Nicole to the newspaper, the Denver Post. I got to a point that what he was telling me was so many lies that I eventually told him I did not want to speak to him again until his family was found. I was going to do anything I could. I mean, her big mistake was getting involved with the married guy, but I wasn't in their relationship. I don't know what kind of things he was saying. These guys are always paint their wives to be monsters. And so if we're going to talk about the criminology part of it, there's a lot within this relationship that is emblematic of other crimes against women that are related to the husband having an affair that are related to the wife's pregnancy, because that is the leading cause of death of pregnant women in America is homicide. The, there's all these red flags of family annihilators and warning signs that were present there. And so many banal commonalities, just everyday stupid things that make this case not special, but all too tragically 
common and up to and including the wife being pregnant, him losing all this weight and getting all buff, you know, him having an affair and the and times leading up to it, to having an affair with a woman who didn't know. And then the pregnancy shows up and then all of a sudden he can't say that, oh, I haven't been with my wife in months and months. He's caught in that lie. And mm -hmm. that is a big thing that leads to these kinds of things, um, these kinds of uh, violence against women, murders of women and family annihilations like this. You know what's weird too, statistically speaking, these murders, family annihilations happen in August more than any other time. 20% of family annihilations happen in August. There's the other added factor of, of Sunday being the most common day of the week. And this happened on a Sunday night. <laughs> like, Could you well, have been more fucking ordinary, Chris? You know, though, I really do try to wrap things up on Sunday usually. So that makes sense to me. <laughs> So you start Monday nice and fresh, right? I mean, it's all right. behind you. Yeah, like all that wife and kid baggage. Just get rid of that before the next week. Yeah, We can't finish this section without talking about something that's near and dear to my heart. And you kind of touched on it, which is does fitness turn people into assholes? Yes. <laughs> yes. So I was thinking about this a lot because I put on a little bit of weight. And uh, so I was like, I, that's what's making me unhappy, right? And I think this is a common thing for people. Wait, or maybe they they join a, a, a new church or they buy motorcycles. I'm surprised there's not a motorcycle in this story. Like We should look into that if Chris had purchased a motorcycle. That's a tell sign. If your husband purchases a motorcycle, your marriage is in trouble. So I, I started lifting weights and I started getting really fit and I was really scaring James with my behavior and uh, when I walked into the house with the faux mohawk he confronted me about it and he was like physical fitness is turning you into an asshole maybe I'm just becoming the asshole I was always meant to be I don't know I'm thinking that weight gain in your in your middle age is a way to balance the universe right because you can't be smart and hot at the same time it's too much power so are you insulting all the beautiful people out there by calling them dumb? Or are you insulting all the smart people? No, out there no, I'm saying when I was younger, look, when I was younger and like the best looking of my life, I was so stupid. So you're talking wisdom. Yeah, exactly. So now you're older, you have all of this knowledge. You could just be killing it at the clubs. You've got me, you know, I'm thinking like a guy too, right? This guy, Chris, was kind of chubby not put together very well i'm making a judgment he wasn't the most put yeah, together judge away. he's a murderer so okay. when people go through these transformations if they're an insecure person and emotionally not stable they suddenly see the power of attractiveness that they did not see before and suddenly i don't know if they're just more open to people being interested in them or if people are just taking notice of them because they look sharper you know and i don't want to scare ladies out there you know if your husband starts losing weight and stuff but that's that is a red flag but it's a red flag in the context of other behaviors it's not just the getting into shape it's the not checking in with you as much or working late at night and changing colognes and there's all these other behaviors that are indicative not just the getting into shape so for me watching the documentary when she's in north carolina with family he won't answer the phone. He won't call her back. She calls yeah. him at night to say good night and he doesn't even answer. He's like, oh, I'm sorry, babe, I was busy. I turned my phone off. And all he was doing was working out and fucking his girlfriend. 
And so mm-hmm. him being in shape has to fall within the larger context of, he also was uninterested in his wife. He didn't call her back. He didn't check in on the kids. He didn't even want to go to North Carolina. He was completely disconnected from that family. And, and also people need to take a deeper dive into why they're unhappy. And I don't think that cheating or losing weight or any of, any of those things, buying a motorcycle, none of those things are going to make you happy. Like superficial stuff is not going to make you happy. And, and I think that people just have an expectation that they're always going to be happy. And I think it's okay to be sad. I think it's okay to have periods of depression and sadness. That's normal. That's kind of what propels you to do something, right? Contentment leads to complacency. I'm not saying you shouldn't try to have some sort of contentment. You have to balance it, but you have to recognize that that happiness and sadness balance each other out and you have to have both. We wouldn't recognize happiness if we didn't also experience its opposite. Exactly, exactly. I want to read you a quote by Carl Jung. Depression, he says, is like a woman in black. If she turns up, don't shoo her away. Invite her in, offer her a seat, treat her like a guest and listen to what she wants to say. Yeah. Isn't that like exactly the point for me? Don't, don't just ignore it or try and shove it away with all the self-medication or the affairs or whatever, but listen to it. It's telling you something. Yeah. So people can become in love with just the newness of a relationship, but I would ask you to consider if you're thinking about having an affair that all the new stuff that you're feeling that happens in a new relationship is going to go away once it becomes a relationship. And progressively, it's going to become exactly like the relationship that you just exited because you're still in the relationship. It's you that's in the relationship. Yeah, you're the common common denominator in all your failed relationships. Exactly. So an affair is not going to be the answer. But (laughs) if you're having a problem, don't assume that making a radical change is going to solve it. First, try and figure out what the problem is leading to the unhappiness. Wherever you go, there you are. Yeah, right. (laughs) It's exactly wherever you go, that's where you are. And same thing with relationships. So yeah, of course, the beginning of a relationship is exciting, but eventually it's going to, if it's going to sustain itself, it has to be more than just the the chemistry and fireflies and all that from the beginning, right? Right. So it, eventually it's got to become old house shoes and sitting on the couch with no makeup on and all that. If, if you can't sustain that, then, and I'm not trying to depress anybody and be like, oh, yeah, so you have a good period for a couple of months and then it just becomes. A- so, don't you, don't you worry, everybody. That sparkle will fade. And then you're yeah. just stuck sitting on the couch yeah. watching that. You know, you when know. you put the firefly in the jar, it lasts for a while and then it just dies in the jar and you got to get a new one. <laughs> That's when my serial killer tendency started. <laughs> bugs. Okay. I'm going to say something that's going to sound really, really fucking strange, but I mean it tongue in cheek because of what a fucking dumbass this kid is. Chris Watts is the most unlucky family annihilator I think I have ever read about or seen or heard of okay this motherfucker could no sooner get back from burying his wife and throwing his children into oil drums than the police were already at his house he thought 
like all family annihilators, maybe he had time. Maybe he was going to bury them and come back and make up a story about how she's visiting her family again. He, I don't think there's ever been a case of before he could get back from burying the bodies, the police were already there. Well, again, some of the stuff Shanann says in, in her texts and videos are, are kind of fortuitous. Like she was constantly commenting on how this guy didn't know his head from his ass, that he was basically a sweet guy and he was sweet in terms of putting up with some of her over-the-top behavior, but she had to like mother him. She had to guide him, right? Okay, so this is uh, from Parade Magazine, October 14th, 2020. Watts told investigators he'd snapped and was in a blind rage when he murdered Shanann, but in his letters, he admits that he planned the, the murders for weeks. He wrote of the night before the slayings, I walked away and said, that's the last time I'm going to tuck my babies. I knew I knew what was going to happen the day before and I did nothing to stop it. I point something out of his words indicating he is completely disassociating himself from his own actions and his own behavior and his own choices, which is indicative of a, of a sociopathic type personality. He says, I knew what was going to happen. I knew not, I knew what I was going to do. Those are two completely different levels of understanding of your own behavior. I knew what was going to happen. Not, I knew what I was planning to do. Right. No ownership there of anything. Like there's bad Chris and there's good Chris and he couldn't stop bad Chris. Um, so then also in his confession letter, Watts claims that he tried to smother his daughters before strangling Shanann, but didn't finish the job. So I'm just sort of going to summarize what I read in these confession letters, but basically he, and he thought he had killed them. He went back into the bedroom, straddled Shanann, pregnant Shanann, and began to have a conversation with her about their marriage not working out. And she began to argue with him and say things like, if you divorce me, you'll never see the kids again. And he strangled her so hard that before her, before his eyes, her, her eyes filled with blood. He comments about the main thing that, that he noticed was he was fascinated by the streaks of mascara running down her face and the blood in her eyes. And he knew she was dead when she relieved herself. Now, as this is happening, it's, there's conflicting stories. Either Bella walked in the room and saw Shanann slumped over and asked what happened to mommy. Uh, Chris says he was dragging her down the stairs, her dead body down the stairs, when Bella was like, what's wrong with mommy? Chris was surprised because he thought he had killed the two daughters. Hmm. Yeah, that's some of the stuff that didn't make it into the documentary because of the approach of, of only showing actual footage. You know, so that that didn't make it in, uh, and I I understand why they wouldn't wouldn't have made it in, but that stuff is uh, it's it makes it so much. I don't know. It's so horrific. The I mean, yeah, Chris, yeah. Chris says after Shanann passed, Bella and Cece woke up. See, he did it again after Shanann died, not after I killed her. Right. There's not any connection to himself. It's so fucking, oh. The New York Times, October 16th, 2020. Chris's words again. 
Bella fought back for her life, he said. In one of the articles I read, he made a comment where he said that he was surprised that Bella fought back. Sweet little Bella. Like who would have thought she would have fought back? That's a freaking creepy. That's a creepy thing to say. The first thing that struck me, and for those of you who haven't seen the documentary, this guy kills his wife and then he loads his two daughters, three and four, up in the car, drives them to the dump site, digs a hole while the girls are in the car, dumps the his wife in a shallow grave. Well, leading up to that, mommy's dead body was on the floorboard of the backseat of that truck. And the girls said, what's wrong with mommy? Yeah. And I, I just, when I was questioning, because I didn't have all this information, right? When I watched the documentary, I didn't have the information about the premeditation, albeit Homer Simpson style premeditation, like more, more like the, is it the, the id, I want this, this is going to happen. It wasn't like a, a planning all the details type of thing. But what struck me when I watched it was, and made, made me think this guy is a sociopath, is I just, what kind of, it's not even disassociation from humanity and empathy. It's just freaking common sense. But if, if the whole thing is, I guess he's just killing the daughters to discard them because it's inconvenient for him. I don't know if he was ever emotionally connected to anything in his life. I don't know. But at least in this point of the story of his life and those little girls' lives, he had lost all connection to any emotion uh, or, or empathy. He was operating from the most robotic place that's terrifying to think about, you know, that people can go into that place and not be snapped back into it when one of the daughters says, don't know, no daddy, no, which he claimed that that was what one of them said. And I don't know what to do with that. It's just, it's I mean, and horrific. Yeah. So Chris Watts did not kill himself, nor did he have a history of domestic violence. This is Dr. Neil Websdale, director of the Family Violence Institute in North Arizona in a Rolling Stone article, clearly feels he's a narcissistic sociopath. It's unusual that he confessed. And it's unusual that he confessed. It's um, the statistics on the suicide of men who kill their families. Are, I was just doing some reading on this. Even especially recently, there have been a lot of men who've killed their families who either ran away or tried to run away or got caught here. I mean, there was a Jones family murders a few years back. He drove the his four children and his wife around in his van for a few weeks before he dumped them and then he eventually got caught. He didn't kill himself. Scott Peterson didn't kill himself. He was trying to run off with the mistress. But for me, this guy was not going to kill himself. He was running off with the mistress. He wanted to buy an Audi and he, he Googled how to marry my mistress. Like, dude, he, it's like Scott Peterson, you know, that case in California where the wife was pregnant, he was having an affair and the mistress didn't know, didn't know the wife was pregnant. And if all of that comes out, then he knows what's going to happen. And these guys often do kill themselves, but depends on the motivation that will lead into it. Like you're worried your family is going to be embarrassed or you're, there's a religious aspect to it or a culturally traditional aspect to it. 
you might also kill yourself too. Or if it has to do with depression or psychosis or something, but he was not, this was not psychosis. This was just, you're a fucking asshole. And one of the reasons why he didn't, even if he planned to kill himself at some point, he wasn't able to because the police were on top of it. The police didn't wait days to come and investigate, but they were on top of it. And those investigators, those detectives were awesome. Yeah, so in the beginning, when they were interrogating him, there was a dude doing the interrogation and he just, he wasn't really getting anywhere with Chris. And a, a female investigator went in and she just had his number right from the start. She came in and she was like, the way she was talking to him was like, all right, Chris, you know, the right thing to do. She was mothering him. She was doing what Shanann did in their relationship. And I, I can't help but think that they looked into this guy and they watched all that footage of him and his wife. And they were like, this guy's going to respond to a woman. And this is a thing too. Different killers will respond to different approaches. Like she knew that if he could take the blame off of himself, that he could probably start confessing some stuff. So she gave him the idea of saying, well, look, Chris, did Shanann do something to the kids? Because if she yep. had done something to the kids and then you were just defending them, then... And he's such a bonehead. I mean, I... If you think about, like, strong, powerful, in-charge woman, she she walked in and said, look, we already know that you're lying. We already know you're lying. So let's just set that aside and we'll get to the part where you tell me what actually happened. Right. And then she started feeding him these things. And he, of course, the dumbass that he is, he latched onto it. And he did what she wanted because he can't find his ass with a flashlight and a map and he let her lead him down that path and by god it worked and i was watching that and i was like standing up and applauding that detective it gave me a, a thrill for sure well while you're talking about that one of the ways that they tricked him in a way in a for a for a good cause was the polygraph i was reading a bbc article on polygraphs in short, polygraph tests record the number of different bodily responses which can be used to determine whether someone is telling the truth. They usually measure things like blood pressure, changes in a person's breathing, and sweating on the palms. And I'm thinking, my Fitbit is a lie detector, <laughs> basically, right? Like, if after after a workout with my trainer and like a high dose of pre-workout, I, I would probably fail. A polygraph <laughs> it says there's no human equivalent to the Pinocchio nose, but lying can increase stress. Again, very mm -hmm. different. It's like, I would guess that the days following killing your wife and kids are pretty stressful. But where does that fall? Where does familicide fall on like the stress meter? Like somewhere between moving and getting mauled by a tiger? It's like pretty, pretty random, right? Like, come on. <laughs> Also, this is why people who don't feel normal emotions can overcome a lie detector. But this motherfucker was stressed because he was going to get caught. He wasn't stressed because he was, you know, missing his family or regretting what he did. He just knew the jig was up. Her name is Tammy Lee. She's a Colorado Bureau of Investigation detective. Yeah. Tammy Lee. Shout out to Tammy Lee. You are a badass. Tammy, Tammy and her partner were awesome. Awesome. And then... The they came up with the idea of having him confess to his father. Brilliant. It's also brilliant. 
But one of the most heartbreaking moments was when, because the way they'd set up the camera, remember you couldn't see Chris's face, which I thought was weird. Like his back was to the camera. I'm like, don't we need to see him during this confession, not the cops? But then when they brought in the father and you could see the father's face as his son is telling him what he had done. It was, he's just, he said, God almighty son. And he just, that was heartbreaking and then heartbreaking and then more heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. How do you, how do you live with that? You, you are the family of the people of, of someone who has done something that horrific. If that's your child who committed that crime. I mean, there's two families destroyed here, not just the one. And then for it to happen in this way and for you to be exposed, like I felt sorry for the family and all the victim blaming and against Shanann and what they had to deal with. It's a, a really tough situation for the families, I think. And another way to put it is like this. I had a professor in college talk about World War II and all the people that died in World War II and how damaging that was to our society because of the contributions those people could have made. And that's another way that I look at it. Those two little girls, Cece and Bella, and what was their potential? Who would they have become? Who's to say that this person that was murdered isn't going to be someone that went on to do great things or even great little things in other people's lives. You don't always have to like cure cancer. Maybe you're the person that helps somebody that's going through depression or you're the person that helps helps the lady down the street that, that can't drive to the grocery store anymore. It's the potential that's, you know. Yeah. And the thing to me, not just the children, but for Shanann herself, really, she maybe she would have had the opportunity if she'd lived to really find her place and to find somebody who loved her and to find her footing in this world in a way that she didn't get from this dipshit, you know? Yeah. And he just fucking robbed her of that. Just made that decision for her. And I, and she was really trying to be a good mother. She was trying her best to be a good wife and mother. And her definition of that did have to do with a lot of social media. But so the fuck what? How about this, Chris? If you don't like that your, your wife does everything on video, talk to her about it. Sit down and make boundaries. Tell her how you feel and what you think that can move forward and compromise on shit productively. But you don't just sit in the background seething while someone's videoing you all the time. And one of the things that really bothers me about this case, I'm going to go back to uh, my Vox article, Asia Romano. She said, you'll find witness after witness telling police in the court documents that they thought Chris Watts was a great dad. Shanann, who was the primary caretaker of the kids, despite battling lupus and constantly hustling for her job, was repeatedly described as bossy and controlling even by good friends. In this moment, I think, she says, that we should take a time to see what a lie that narrative is. Shanann got framed as demanding and frigid, even by her own friends, for things like controlling her kids' diets. But Chris received praise for doing the bare minimum it took to be perceived as a good father, taking his kids to the park, keeping their photos in his wallet, and telling people he loved his kids. That is so fucking true. What a good father, right? If Shanann had done just the bare minimum, nobody in that family would have had dinner at night. Nobody would have even been able to pay the bills. I mean, the heat would have been turned off in their Colorado home, you know? like. And the thing, the thing that really too, and that bothers me about her being controlling or whatever, well, you don't know the situation she was really living inside of. Being married to someone who is number one, a dipshit, a complete narcissist and utterly useless. She's got to play all the roles. Of course she was controlling and demanding. That's how she was surviving in this marriage she was trying to make work. Yeah. That's the thing when you're talking about, if you have a dominant controlling person in a relationship and a passive person, 
they're equally responsible for the breakdown of the relationship. If Because as a passive person, if you're not communicating to the dominant person that what they're doing is hurting your self-esteem or hurting your feelings. And because I know people that are like totally confused when their marriage blows up, like he never said anything about this. He never said it bothered him. Yes. Some, some guys just like being dominated and some women like that, the guy dominating them and that's their bag. Right. But in some cases, and I, you know, with the prevalence of divorce in the modern age, a lot of people, the, it looked like they had a bad relationship and guess what? They had a bad relationship. It looked exactly like what it was and they just didn't divorce because of the social stigma of it. Yeah. It's, it's shocking to me today how many religious organizations, churches, put so much pressure on people to stay in marriages, even still today. Uh-huh. It's so ingrained in people that their life is going to be over if they end a marriage. But I do think that there are a lot of people out there that are worried about the loss of social status, how, how they're perceived in the community, and, um, and they just feel desperate to get out of the relationship. And the only way they can think of is murder. So anything else we're fearing today about this piece of shit, Chris, the family murderer? Oh, there was another thing that he said that when the documentary came out, he was triggered because it brought up awful memories for him. Really? Really? You piece of human garbage? Really, Chris? I'm so sorry you were triggered by having to relive the, the horrific crime you committed that made people sick to their stomachs. I have a friend whose husband knew what it was about, but didn't tell her and sat her down to watch it. And she couldn't, you can't surprise somebody with this story. It's really, really awful. I wasn't even impressed with his workout, to be honest. We got to see his workout. Honestly, I feel like he got ripped just because he's a dude. That, I think- I, I think that's an, uh, finally an add insult to injury and to insult because I did, you're right. He didn't even have good workouts. No. He's such a mundane cliche. Yeah. Just- there's nothing interesting about him. He's just icky and oogie. And I'm glad we did this episode to make sure our opinions were known on this piece of garbage. But uh, my point is, I think I don't even, I wasn't even impressed by his workout. A lot of chest press. That's all I saw, right? That's all guys do is chest press. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm like do a goddamn burpee and see how you feel, okay? Right. Marie, anything else? Or are we about, uh, we about out of words for this guy? Um, I think we're out of words for this guy. All right. So you've been listening to Now Fear This. Please go to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and rate us five stars. Rate us. Don't rape anybody. Go to our website. Subscribe there for exclusive content. That is fearthispodcast.com. And email us, please. What are you fearing today? Doesn't matter what it is. The funnier, the weirder, the scarier, the better. Our email is fearless at nowfear.com. So that's it for us and we'll see you next time.